Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Matkoff. Uh, in this episode of Russian Roulette, I am joined by Angela Stent, the director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown University. Uh, she's the author of the recent book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest, uh, which won the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy's Prize for Best Book on U.S.-Russian Relations. She also has long uh, experience in academia and in government. Uh, including the Office of Policy Planning at the State Department and the National Intelligence Council. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, her new book, uh, about U.S.-Russian relations, about the role of Putin, uh, and lots else beside. I'm joined in the studio today by Angela Stent, uh, director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and the author of the new book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Angela, thanks for joining us again. I'm delighted to be on the podcast again with you, Jeff. So are we living in Vladimir Putin's world? (laughs) (laughs) So we are living certainly in a world where Russia has managed to reassert itself on the world stage in a way that we couldn't have imagined um, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. And to some extent, we're reacting to things that Russia is doing in a way that we maybe thought we wouldn't have to a number of years ago. Uh, We're not completely living in Putin's world. It's obviously also Trump's world and probably Xi Jinping's world as well. But, But it's a world that has been altered by the way that Russia has reasserted itself. And so what is Putin's world? What about the world reflects Putin or reflects Russia? How has this emergence of of Russia as as an important international actor changed the world? Russia, um, and of course it's backed by China in this, but Russia is essentially, since it has uh, been um, becoming more influential on the world stage, um, is arguing that the post-Cold War rules of the game that the United States and its allies in Europe and Japan sought to establish in the world, if you like, the post-Cold War order, liberal-based, norm-based order is over, uh, that it was one that was dominated by the West in its favor and that didn't take Russia's interests into account. And so part of what Putin is trying to do is to get the support of other countries, and he does have the support of a number of them, to say we have to move beyond this post-Cold War world uh, to a what Foreign Minister Lavrov has called a post-West world. And what exactly does that look like? I mean, one of the criticisms we often hear of Russian diplomacy, Russian foreign policy, is that it's pretty clear what Russia's against, which is a global system dominated by and run for the benefit of the United States. But it's less clear what Russia's positive agenda is. What does Russia seek to replace that world with? It's still not clear what the positive agenda is. But what the Russians argue when they talk about a post-West order and what they write about is something that sort of mixes, that combines the 19th century concert of power where you had five great powers dominating Europe and uh, and parts of the rest of the world who respected each other's interests and didn't try and interfere with what was happening domestically in those countries. Uh, and so it would be a mixture of that and sort of the Yalta system, which Putin has praised an, on a number of occasions. And that is, again, a division of the world this time, which of course would include China, China, Russia, and the United States into uh, a sort of spheres of influence. 
and an agreement that each great power doesn't touch the countries in the other powers' spheres of influence. Whether that's a positive agenda, I don't know, but it's different uh, from what the U.S. and its allies have sought to establish. Mm -hmm. Now, your book is called Putin's World, and how much of this alternative vision of, of global order is really Putin's and how much of it reflects a larger dissatisfaction in Russia, within the Russian elite, with the way that the post-Cold War world has been structured? Well, I think the first thing, and I do go into this in the book, is the influence of kind of history and Russia's conception of its role in the world, which has developed over centuries. And that's something that Putin and the other elites around him have either grown up with or have imbibed more recently. Uh, so it's not only his vision. It's clearly a vision that has been shared on the one hand by generations of Russians who have believed in their kind of unique Eurasian destiny, in Russia's separateness from the West, and its right um, to exercise its influence over its neighbors. Um, so that that's a longer-term thing. And then it's reinforced by, I think, Vladimir Putin's own particular view, shared by, again, most of the people in the current elite, at least, that what happened in the 1990s after the Soviet collapse was a disaster, that Russia was chaotic, it was impoverished, and it was humiliated by the West. And therefore, what Putin has said as his task is to reestablish Russia as a great power to, again, its rightful role in the world. And again, that is something that is shared by the elites around him and, and never went away in the 1990s. So what that seems to suggest is that if Putin were to disappear from the stage tomorrow, whether because he, what we might call, pulls a Nazarbayev and decides to step down or because something happens to him, um, not much would change in terms of Russia's engagement with the world. I think what could change would first of all be the rhetoric. So the next question would would Putin's successor feel the need to, if you like, demonize the West in the way in the way that Putin has done and blamed the United States uh, for much of Russia's ills, or would a successive leader be willing to maybe somewhat moderate that rhetoric? Um, and then the other thing is, would would a successor be as committed as Putin has been and those around him to maintaining the frozen conflicts in the post-Soviet space, to maintaining the ongoing conflict in Ukraine? Might they see um, a different way of doing it? I think immediately very little would change. It's possible that something may, might change further down the road. Yeah, I, I think one of the important considerations here is, well, it, it, it's worth keeping in mind that Putin himself has changed and his evaluation of the West and of the, the global order has changed. Um, certainly the rhetoric towards the West has become harder. Uh, maybe you point to the Munich speech. Maybe you go back even before that to things like his, his comments after Beslan. But it's pretty clear that Putin has a kind of personal sense of grievance uh, against the way that he or Russia has has been treated by the West and that that affects in some way his his approach. And so even if this kind of larger framework about worldview of, of Russia's role as a, as a global power remains, maybe that sense of grievance is something that's very much unique to Putin individually. Yeah, I, th I think that's a very important point. I mean, Putin, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a personal tragedy for Putin in as much as he was a mid-level KGB officer in East Germany enjoying his time in Dresden. And when the war came down, uh, the East German population essentially rushed up to the building in which the Soviet KGB mm -hmm. and the East German uh, secret police were co-located. They banged on the doors and they wanted the files. Now, uh, what Putin and he and he 
talked about this in a book that was published mm-hmm. when he first became president. They were in there burning the files. Yeah. Um, so the mob was there. Right. So he survived the mob. And, and then, Putin of course, threatened to shoot them. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So he survived the mob. And then what he, he was out of a job. Uh, mm. He had to return sort of to the Soviet Union when Germany reunified uh, in 1990, um, apparently, you know, carrying with them a East German washing machine on the top of their Soviet car <laughs> <laughs> because it was better than the quality of the washing machines that they could get at that point in the Soviet Union. And then he was sort of unemployed for and a couple of years. people ask why the Soviet Union collapsed. Right, exactly. And then he was unemployed for a couple of years. So this was a personal humiliation for him. Um, and I think the other thing, again, that he talks about in when he talks about what happened in 1989-1990 was that when they were attacked by the mob in East Germany, you know, they kept calling Moscow for support. And then he said, and Moscow was silent, yeah. that there was no support, there were no instructions, nothing from above. And I think that also um, impressed on him, uh, you know, that, th- that things had to change. Yeah. Well, as he said, I think it was after the Beslan attack, we were weak and the weak get beaten. So in the book, you you talk about Putin's role in, in sort of changing Russia. How has he been able to sort of harness uh, this frustration with the way that the post-Cold War world turned out to sort of bring Russia back to where it's in a position to to challenge this global order? Well, so I, th- I think the first thing that he did when he came into office was he promised to restore a strong state. And apparently, the, <clears throat> that's what most Russians wanted. They wanted a strong state. That's what they've been, and a strong leader. And they, of course, had had a very weak state, and they'd had a leader who was quite incapacitated, Boris Yeltsin, in his last years. Now, Putin was very lucky because in the first eight years of his time in the presidency, 2000 to 2008, oil prices kept rising. Uh, GDP in Russia was rising by 7% per annum. And so for the for all Russians really, their standard of living increased. And so that that's the you know, that's how he won their support in the beginning mm-hmm. was that they were living better. And so when he did begin to clamp down uh, domestically, um, they were willing to tolerate quite a lot of that because they were living better. And the other thing he did at the beginning was to um, gather the Yeltsin-era oligarchs, the rich people who owned the TV stations and who owned a lot of the wealth, and say to them, um, you can keep your money. I'm not going to question that. But you have to stay out of politics. And you essentially have to get out of the media businesses, which is what happened. And I think for a lot of Russians, they didn't like these oligarchs. They saw these people who'd gotten fabulously rich in the 1990s while they'd suffered. Uh, and um, so by getting rid of them, we know that he one of them was jailed for 10 years, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Anyway, I think that increased the popular support for him. Um, and then, you know, he systematically began to clamp down domestically. Um, and that was particularly true. I mean, it began almost from the beginning. It was particularly true. You mentioned the Beslan terrorist attack. Um, there was that. Um, and then, of course, there were the color revolutions in Georgia in 2003 and the first one in Ukraine in 2004, where he felt um, that this could happen in Russia too. Uh, and he wanted to make sure that you, you wouldn't have Russians out in the streets demanding that a corrupt uh, repressive regime be replaced. Um, And he managed to do that. And again, by appealing to the population's fear of chaos, by Mm -hmm. presenting himself as, you know, the stable, uh, the strong leader preventing chaos. Yeah. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that Russia went through quite a bit of chaos in the 1990s. Um, It was the economic collapse, but it was more than that. I mean, 
mentioned Beslan, but there were a number of terrorist attacks that in some way or another connected to the unstable situation in the North Caucasus. Um, there was criminality, the, the growth of the mafia, there was you know, rampant social inequality, the collapse of, you know, basic healthcare and other kinds of social services. The general sense of insecurity that people had in their day-to-day -day lives was something that for people who didn't live through it in the West is probably hard to imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think you're quite right. And I think maybe we in the West underestimated that. I mean, it's the people obviously in the U.S. government and different administrations who were dealing with Russians dealt with, uh, you know, those that were close to Yeltsin and didn't, didn't really see the effects of that. So I think we underestimated that. And that is why even today Putin remains very popular outside of the major cities, in the countryside. Mm -hmm. He's less popular yeah. among the urban elite, particularly in Moscow and St. Petersburg, the two uh, largest cities. Um, but, you know, the, but if you like, the silent majority of Russians still support him. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the subtitle of your book, I guess, is Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Um, Russia is clearly against this Western order. It's against a, a system in which it's kind of relegated to a subordinate role where it has to be a rule taker. Um, but do you buy the argument that Russia is, Putin's Russia is hostile to the West, that for example, it sees Western democracy as a, as a threat to its own existence or to the, the perpetuation of its own political system? Well, first of all, let's come back to the personality of Putin, the former KGB agent. He was certainly raised to see the West as the main enemy. Um, and, you know, we can ask, does he really believe that the West is out to get him, that the United States wants to break Russia up, that we're trying to create regime change? We don't know that, but it's quite possible that he certainly doesn't believe that the West would be a friend of Russia's. Mm -hmm. Having said that, he, when he first started out as president, he did get together with the different U.S. presidents, both Clinton and then George W. Bush, um, and then with you know the, the head of the World Bank at that time, etc. And he, he made it sound as if he did want to have closer ties with the West. He did the same with the European leaders. And so some of that, you can say he became disillusioned. His expectations were not borne out because, uh, you know, and then he can point to the whole litany with the United States. Russia supported us after the uh, terrorist attacks of 9-11. They supported us in the first phase of the uh, war in Afghanistan. And what they got was the U.S. withdrawing from arms control agreements. They got the Iraq war. They got the color revolutions, et cetera. NATO um, expansion. And NATO expansion. Uh, and so you could say all of those things um, uh, made Putin believe that the West had somehow betrayed agreements that uh, Russia thought that it had made with the United States. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion in, in Washington, particularly right about now, um, about Russian meddling in, in American politics. And I think there's a, a sense on the Russian side that to the extent that they acknowledge having done that, um, it's they see it as responsive yeah. um, to things that we mm -hmm. have done to try and, and interfere in, in Russian politics. And so this kind of gets to the this question about you know, does Russia see American democracy or see sort of Western-style democracy as necessarily threatening to the way that it chooses to do business at home? I think that Russia sees the Amer American attempts to 
you know, engage or American engagement in democracy promotion in Russia as a threat. And that's why, of course, all of the, the you know, both the Republican Democratic parties, their um, uh, NGOs are now banned from Russia National Endowment for Democracy. Um, although that hasn't happened to com- comparable European organizations, I think they certainly see democracy promotion as a threat, as a direct challenge to his rule. And things like training in people in parallel vote counting is also seen as a threat <laughs> when you know, when we know that they falsified well, they're trying to count the their votes elections. Themselves. They're yes. trying to count the votes. So do, does he think the model of democracy is a threat to Russia? I think that's more complicated because I don't think most Russians would be necessarily interested in living in the kind of system that we have. Um, I, you know, the, obviously there are small groups of Russian sort of uh, democratic activists um, who would like a similar system to what we have, and that's seen as a threat to him. But I think it's more sort of the the interference of the West um, in in Russian domestic politics. And you're quite right that Putin believes, and he said it, that the U.S. has been interfering in the Russian domestic system and elections for a long time. And he particularly seek, sought to believe that Hillary Clinton had been paying demonstrators in mm-hmm. 2011 to go into the streets uh, and protest him. Right. And remember, he said she was paying them out of her own pocket, pocket. <laughs> which she would have have to be because the State Department doesn't have that kind of money. <laughs> So this Russia that seeks to impose changes on the the nature of the global order has implications not just for the United States, but for lots of other regions of the world. Uh, One of the front lines of the U.S.-Russia confrontation, this new Cold War, if you want to call it that, um, has been in Europe. Uh, Russia has been doing a lot to try and expand its political and economic influence in Europe uh, to sort of challenge the not only transatlantic institutions, but also um, support for Western-style political parties and democratic institutions in a number of of European countries. Um, How important do you think Russia is in the kind of European crisis that we have right now, the political crisis around everything from sort of Brexit to the rise of populism and sort of mistrust of institutions and how much of it is just kind of Russia, you know, kicking an open door. So I think one of the ways that Putin has managed to reestablish Russian influence globally and certainly to the extent that he has in Europe is by taking advantage of opportunities presented to him by a divided West. Russia's major role uh, in terms of its rise to power, if you like, is as a disruptor, uh, not, you know, we get back to your question about positive agenda. So what Russia has done is it understands that there are deep, there's deep polarization in Europe, of course, as in the United States, and that uh, populist movements have arisen uh, because they're fed up with the European Union, uh, because they're very angry about the migrant crisis, about about uh, migrants in Syria coming to Europe. So all of these divisions existed anyway. What what Russia has been very good at is exploiting these differences or, and, and manipulating them. And as we saw both in our own country and in Europe, through the use of social media, through the support for populist movements, Putin presents himself both domestically in Russia and, I, and, and to the West, certainly, as a supporter of populism and against the elites. Um, he has his own way of doing that, but he certainly does that. And so you have all of the Eurosceptical parties um, in Europe, 
Uh, they tend to like Russia. We know that there was there's been direct Russian financial support mm-hmm. to something like France's National Front. There's a debate about how important Russia was in the Brexit debate. There's some people who are saying that, again, there was Russian money that flowed into some of those movements. I think we should be uh, careful to assign too much um, agency to Russia in all of this, to say that Russia, you know, has manipulated everything, has been responsible for everything. But there certainly has been some financial support. There's certainly social media support. And then we have this very new an interesting phenomenon, which is the return of some of the Central European countries mm-hmm. to a much more pro-Russian policy. Hungary is obviously yeah. the major example here, um, but also Slovakia, the Czech Republic, um, Bulgaria. So a number of those countries that were called New Europe by <laughs> our former Defense Secretary Rumsfeld because he thought they were the most pro-Western, then are kind of turning back to Russia. And of course, you have a government in Italy, a populist government that is much more pro-Russian yes. as well. So. You can't, this is not all Russia's doing. Uh, You can't say this is all Putin's creation. It's just that Russia uh, has, you know, verbally and through other ways supported these groups and welcomes anything that, you know, weakens uh, a European Union. Yeah. So you say I have a couple of questions. I mean, one, I have my own view on this, but why do you think that Russia is hostile to the European Union as an organization. Uh, For a long time, the Russian mantra was essentially, NATO's bad, but the EU is good. We don't care if countries want to join the EU. That's none of our business. Clearly, that changed when it came to um, the association agreement with Ukraine, which precipitated the the Euromaidan and then the, the conflict with Russia. But what is it about the EU specifically that sets off Putin and and the Russian political elite and that leads it to do things like use force to stop Ukraine from signing a trade agreement or to support these Eurosceptic parties all across the continent? I think there are a number of reasons for that. One of them is, I mean, there's always been a Russian suspicion of the European Union and a failure to understand it. Uh, you know, Henry Kissinger famously asked, what phone number do I right. call Who if do I, I want to reach you know, Europe? Yeah. And I think from the Russian point of view, first of all, a country like Russia, Putin's Russia, that believes so much in the concept of kind of absolute sovereignty, that great powers have absolute sovereignty and that other countries have limited sovereignty, but no one would voluntarily give up sovereignty. So there's a failure to understand how the different members, you know, why should Germany, you know, this one of the most powerful countries in Europe, you know, be willing to be in a in a situation where it has, you know, voting rights, where it has to listen to much smaller countries, I don't know, Estonia or something like that. So there's that. that. Then Putin has always understood, and not only Putin, his predecessors, that if you want to get deals with different European countries, you deal with them separately. So he'd much rather have a direct bilateral Russian-German channel, Russian-French channel, than have to deal with the European Union as a whole. Um, And I think it's gotten much worse I mean, so that suspicion has always been there. But I think it's gotten much worse since the experience with the association agreement, because when the Russians started to read in 2013 the fine print in the agreement that Ukraine was to have signed with the EU, they realized that the Ukrainian-Russian economic relationship would be seriously changed by that and jeopardized from their point of view. Um, Not only the economic relationship, I think it also had serious political Political consequences, too. And the other thing is that the European Union is, you know, conceived 
views of itself as a community of values. And the values that they're trying to promote are not the values that Putin wants to promote. Plus, plus you have the precedent of a not very successful but still extant Eastern Partnership Program where the European Union was trying to encourage Russia's neighbors, mm-hmm. Western neighbors, right. um, and the including states the South of the South. Exactly, including the South Caucasus, to kind of move closer to Europe and further, and by implication, further away from Russia. So I think for all those reasons, whereas Russia, the Russians have always said NATO was the real threat and previously said, well, you know, European Union is only economic. Of course, it's not only economic. And so now they see it as, if not as much of a threat as NATO, it was certainly a serious threat. So let's look at this from the European side, because I find this association between populist movements in Europe and the United States uh, on the one hand and Russia on the other to be kind of striking. Uh, it makes sense from Russia's perspective that these are disruptive forces. They're Eurosceptic. They're uh, hostile to the existing elites, whatever it is. What do you make of the attraction that Russia holds for leaders and, and members and followers of, of these movements? I mean, Russia doesn't have a particularly populist economic model. I don't think, you know, we can point to Putin as, you know, offering a, a, a vision of a sort of fairer world in which the little guy gets uh, a better shake than he does uh, in the West. You know, Russia's famously implemented a flat tax, which is quite regressive. Regressive, Um, So what is it that sort of explains the affinity that people attracted to this populist message in in Europe and the United States have for a figure like Putin and for a country like Russia? I mean, it's a very interesting and, and, and I guess <laughs> complicated question. I mean, first of all, if we're talking about European populist groups, uh, both on the left and the right, um, they tend to be anti-American. So one of the things that Putin has fed into is the sort of anti-American streak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, it's Russia standing up to the big bad United States. You know, then you have Edward Snowden, you have the revelations about, about mm-hmm. that, the idea of the deep state. Of course, the irony is, you know, Russia is a Russia state. Russia does run, kind of have a deep state. <laughs> Russia is a country run by a former KGB mm-hmm. agents, and many of his closest <laughs> colleagues are also formerly, formerly KGB. But we'll put that one aside. So, so there's that. There's that kind of appeal that they have. I also find it ironic that, you know, the left, um, you know, likes Russia. Russia is hardly a a left-leaning country anymore, and it has a kind of a grotesque form of capitalism anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is the anti-American. And then it's looking to Putin as someone who also has stood up to what they consider their overly bureaucratic, corrupt governments. In other words, they somehow see... Putin as someone who's with them against their own elites, Mm -hmm. again, which is kind of very strange because in reality, that's not, I think, the reality of what it is. But I think- Well, and if you want to talk about corruption, I mean, I think the scale of corruption in Russia far (laughs) surpasses anything in most of the countries we're talking about. Exactly. But I think, again, people, if they, you know, if you have to start from the starting point that they distrust and dislike their own governments, Mm -hmm. and therefore they're going to maybe discount things that their own governments say about Russia, they're not going to have very- um, independent information on that. And, you know, again, in this era of social media, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's out there on the internet that would present Russia in a very favorable light uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and the West in a very unfavorable light. And people, much of it some produced people in Russia. That up. Right, much of it produced <laughs> in Russia. And people lap mm-hmm. that up. Yeah. And I think that's really important because, you know, the anti-American piece certainly sells in, in parts of Europe. 
But this message or this idea of Russia also has purchase in the United States. And I think, you know, you see that on both the left and the right of the American political debate. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had the experience of going on one of these, I'll, I won't name them, call-in TV shows. <laughs> and people calling in, you know, from uh, the state of Georgia, Kansas, whatever, and saying, you know, we don't believe the, the mainline media. It's all fake news. We think RT, Russia Today, yeah. uh, that's where they get their news from. And you mm -hmm. say, how could some American living somewhere in the South or the Midwest believe what they see on RT? Because maybe it's they're receptive to the message because they're so suspicious of what they see as the Washington elite. Right. Well, you know, question more, but that includes questioning <laughs> RT, I guess. Right. Um, okay. Well, the other big player in this geopolitical drama, if you will, of course, is China. Mm -hmm. um, and if Russia is against the West and with the rest, uh, one of the countries that it's very demonstratively tried to portray itself as being with uh, is China. Uh, once you drill down on that relationship, it obviously looks a little bit more complicated than that. Um, but how has Putin's view of China changed and how serious is this kind of Russian admiration for, for Xi Jinping and for the, the kind of China that he's presiding over? When Putin first came into power, I mean, the Sino-Russian relationship had certainly improved under Yeltsin and they were working out their border mm. agreements. We have to put this in context. Fifty years ago this year, 1969, Russians and Chinese were shooting at each other right over the border. Um, and so Putin, right from the beginning, um, you know, understood that uh, it was important if, to improve ties with China. Uh, but I think China has become much more important as the relationship with the West has deteriorated, and particularly under since Xi Jinping has been, uh, you know, the president of China. Um, I see, I mean, the relationship was improving. I see the turning point really as 2014. After Ukraine the annexation crisis. of the Ukraine yeah. crisis, after the annexation of Crimea. Now, it's true that in the General Assembly, the Chinese did not vote uh, um, to support Russia, but they abstained in the vote. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, ever since then, Russia then was hit with sanctions from the West. And China was willing to, you know, fill the gap, <laughs> uh, fill, sorry, fill the vacuum. Um, and the Chinese and Russians, for instance, had been negotiating on a gas deal for mm -hmm. years. And the Russians had never signed on because the Chinese weren't willing to pay what the Russians right, wanted. Because well, the Chinese were acting like good business Good people. businessmen, right? And so after, you know, after the Western sanctions, the Russians didn't really have any choice. And so we don't know exactly what the terms of this $400 billion power of Siberia gas deal were, but they, it was, they obviously obviously not as good as what the Russians would have wanted. So the Chinese have stepped in since then. And I think the Chinese have played this very cleverly. Mm -hmm. um, they have never criticized the Russians. They have never officially joined any sanctions, although mm -hmm. the large Chinese banks still observe some of the post-Ukraine sanctions because of they yeah. have a much greater stake in economic relations with the United States. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they, they're very respectful of Putin. Uh, Xi Jinping calls Putin his best friend. I have a picture in the book of the two of them making blini, Russian pancakes <laughs> together, Putin teaching Xi how to make pancakes. Uh, and that was right around the same time that for the first time, Chinese troops uh, participated in military maneuvers mm -hmm. with Russia in the Russian Far East. So there is no doubt that the relationship has gotten closer. Um, the two of them both 
share the view that the current world order, to come back to what we started with, um, has not taken their interests into account and that they have been um, uh, not well served by this world order. They both talk about the need for a new world order. But I think the Chinese have a somewhat different view of it because the Chinese have actually done very well economically. (laughs) They've done very well out of it. And therefore, they want a world order, particularly an economic world order, where they're going to have more agency in setting the rules. Mm -hmm. They don't want to jettison the whole thing. Um, The other thing that the two of them have in common clearly is any as an allergy to any domestic discontent. They support each other completely. Uh, Whatever domestic crackdowns there are, you don't hear about it. We haven't heard a word from Russia about what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs, etc. So you hear, you know, they completely support each other. And and in the United Nations, they do the same thing. Now, you you alluded at the beginning to say that obviously um, it's not, it's a little bit more complicated than that. If you look at the fundamentals. China is, of course, a rising power. Russia is not a rising power. Um, It's the junior partner already Mm -hmm. economically. If you look at the pattern of trade between the two countries, apparently it's willing to accept that at the moment. And if you again, if you look at the Russian Far East, um, it's very heavily depopulated. Mm -hmm. There are about 6 million Russians who live there. On the other side of the border with China, there are, I believe, I think 110 million Chinese. The Chinese side is very modern, very Mm -hmm. well built up. The Russian side is dilapidated. You just look at that. These are territories which, of course, once belonged to China. And now nobody talks about this. Under Mao Zedong, he did, but the Chinese obviously don't say a word about it. Some Chinese textbooks still talk about it. Yeah, exactly. So, but who knows what happens? And then you have the common neighborhood Central Asia. Mm -hmm. So up till now, the Russians have been more or less prepared to accept a division of labor. Uh, They have a security relationship with a number of key key Central Asian countries. China's a predominant economic power, and the Russians say that's fine. Well, let's look at China's Belt and Road Initiative. And we already see that's been quite active in a country like Kazakhstan. once, you know, as the Chinese develop that, when you build roads and railways and bridges and pipelines, you get involved in the security yeah. of the country too. So, and plus, if you look at the different, you know, projects in the Belt and Road Initiative, Russia doesn't get much out of this. Yeah. So clearly, mm-hmm. further down the way, you're, I think the equilibrium that you now have in Central Asia uh, could clearly change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but for the time being, again, the Russians, you, you'll find nothing official, right, in official Russia that ever questions anything that's happening with China. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you talk to people privately, that's obviously different. And I think the same is true in China. Um, How much has this kind of reassessment of China as a partner really penetrated down to the grassroots? It's obviously something that's been motivated by political considerations, things like the need to have a fallback option when the West imposed sanctions on Russia. And so it's been a very elite-driven process. And you talked about you know Putin and Xi making blini. Um, how much appreciation or admiration do you get the sense ordinary Russians have for China? Uh, I don't get the sense it's penetrated that far down. Certainly when I go to Moscow, and I'm sure you see the same thing, there are more Chinese tourists than I've ever mm-hmm. seen before. Yeah. Um, but I think it hasn't penetrated down. And then you look, even if you, let's say at the elite level, where do Russians and Chinese send their children to study if they want them to get an education outside of their country? Well, they send them uh, to Europe or the United States. I mean, the number of students, Russian students in China and vice versa, it's growing, but it's still very small. Yeah, you hardly ever meet Russians who know or even are studying Chinese. Right, exactly. And I think 
more or less the same is true in China. So I think it hasn't penetrated that far down. Um, and I think if you write, you know, uh, the the Russians, even ordinary Russians, will judge themselves much more by the West, the mm-hmm. U.S., maybe the Europeans, n- not in comparison to China. And Russians will tell you, you know, on a personal level, um, we have much less in common with the Chinese than we do with yeah. the Americans. Which, given Russia's history and culture and everything else, I mean, makes sense. You know, Bobo Lowe several years ago wrote this book about China and Russia being an axis Mm -hmm. of convenience. And I think events since 2014 have, if he was right at the time, have clearly moved beyond that. And there's much more to that axis now than mere convenience. But at the same time, it is in some ways uh, a partnership that's built on having a common problem that they're seeking to deal with rather than something that really has these these deep roots. Yeah, I think you're quite right. And I think I do not believe that it is anymore just an axis of convenience. It's not an alliance. It's not going to become an alliance. Um, but, it you know, it's a strengthening partnership. Yeah. Um, OK, just before we go um, – if we are living in something like Putin's world, uh, this being Washington and this being Russian roulette, uh, <laughs> uh, what should we do about it? Well, at the moment, um, we're at such a low level in terms of kind of U.S.-Russian contacts that we're at a point where we do need some more engagement with Russia on issues that are in our own national interest. So far, the Trump administration has imposed rafts of sanctions on Russia, and there are more on the books. Um, That hasn't done very much to alter what Russia is doing, uh, either in Ukraine or anywhere else. And we just have this week uh, uh, reports of Russian troops arriving in Venezuela to back the Maduro government, when we're, of course, backing uh, the Guaido government. So, um, uh, you know, one can argue about sanctions, but they don't seem to at least have produced any of the political results that we desired. We have an arms control treaty, the strategic uh, arms control treaty, New START, which expires in 2021. We've just pulled out recently, as have the Russians of the Intermediate Range mm-hmm. Nuclear Forces Treaty. If we do not extend that uh, New START treaty by five years, then we will be in a situation after 2021 where we have no arms control agreements between the United States and Russia. This is dangerous. It has implications for non-proliferation. We can argue about that you have to ultimately include China and some of the other nuclear powers in this. But still, this is something where we have to talk to the Russians, the whole idea of strategic stability of at least having these channels of communication with them. Um, There are other areas um, in which the US and Russia are working. The Arctic is one of them. We've been cooperating in space. Um, the, you know, there's still some areas where we work together and our militaries work together, um, for instance, on deconflicting air operations mm-hmm. in Syria. But we're still at a very minimal level of contacts. Um, and since the, the last thing that the Russians did, which was to capture uh, Ukrainian sailors in the, in the Sea of Azov, in the Kerch Straits, and we've now, I think, frozen uh, most contacts until they release these sailors. So... You ha- we have to – I think we have to move beyond that, but I think we have to be very realistic about what we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the word reset. Um, <laughs> my previous <laughs> book right. showed – yeah, <laughs> we, showed we keep that trying. We keep, keep trying failing. and it usually doesn't end well because they think – we think there's some magic formula and if only we found it, everything would go better. It probably wouldn't because of many of the long-term factors that we were talking about. Um, but, you know, there is an argument um, for resuming some engagement – 
actually for promoting economic ties, although that's difficult at the moment because we have all of those sanctions. Um, but also, you know, we have to have better defenses. Clearly, we know that the Russians were interfering even up till the day of the midterm mm-hmm. elections uh, in November of 2018. We have to have better defenses. And apparently at that point, we did retaliate in some way. Uh, we have to, and, and I think we have to, we clearly have to work out with our social media companies, our tech companies, better ways of defending ourselves, not only from the Russians, but from other people who are manipulating them. Uh, well, and some of those people <laughs> happen to be located right here in the United States. Yes, exactly. So it's, um, so, so these are, you know, you have to, it has to be a multi, you have to pull multiple fronts on this. But I think that we're not going to see any major improvement in ties. Uh, and I, and I think the fact that uh, President Trump uh, according to Robert Mueller, uh, was not guilty um, of collusion with Russia. I don't think that's going to make very much difference uh, because he's quite hamstrung in what he can do with mm-hmm. Russia. So again, it's just the small steps. Right. I mean, the political cloud hanging over this administration, that this Russia-shaped cloud uh, hasn't gone away. I think the no. Congress is still very much interested in probing what those connections were. Uh, I don't think that we've heard the end of this story by any stretch of the oh, imagination. No. Definitely not. Um, All right. Well, uh, Angela, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, If you haven't, uh, please go out and get Angela's book and uh, join us next time on Russian Roulette. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us. That is our show today. There is a link to Angela's bio and to her new book in the show notes. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't done so already. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, also, uh, this is your biweekly or is it semi-weekly reminder to send us your mailbag questions. Uh, you can email them to rep at csis.org uh, with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. And we're going to do another mailbag segment here shortly. Uh, also, uh, your reminder that you can follow us on Twitter uh, at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Uh, and of course, uh, as always, big thanks uh, to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen. Uh, that includes notably our producer, research associate, and program manager, all rolled into one, uh, Cyrus Newland, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab teams. Thanks for listening. Uh, until next time.